Hello, and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. The historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. And my name is John Keen Keeley. This is the 368th show of ROI, and our guest for today is author Keen Bonnet, who is going to talk to us about behind the scenes at the Guthrie Center. The history buff for today's show is Rick Sweet. The show's theme song is Kayla's Theme, which was written and performed by Mark Zap Zaptel. Our producer and engineer is, as always, Dave Baker. This is the opening segment of our show called Farouk Dinarin, and today we're talking about behind the scenes at the Guthrie Center with author Keen Bonin. Keen, how did you end up at the Guthrie Center? Well, uh, kind of a roundabout way, I graduated from Baylor Law School in 1973 and immediately moved to Colorado to build houses and eventually got back to Texas and practiced law for a year and hated it. And I had a friend that lived in Minneapolis, and uh, he knew I wanted to do some writing, and he said, why don't you come up here? There's a really good art scene, and I can get you... uh, a job working backstage at the Guthrie, and that's what I did. And I ended up being at the Guthrie Theater for the 1975, 76, and 77 season, and then uh, kind of off and on for the next few years. And then from there, I ended up uh, actually getting into the Stagehands uh, Union, and I worked for about uh, 20 years at the Ordway uh, Music Theater in St. Paul. Okay. Uh, first two questions, can you tell our listeners, uh, we know where it's at, but can you tell them where the Guthrie Center is? And the second question is, is there really law in Texas? I really have a hard time believing that you practice <laughs> Well, that might be why I left Texas. I don't know. but uh, And actually, it's the Guthrie Theater. Uh, an answer I can accept. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the Guthrie Theater, not not center, so just Sorry. to be clear. Um, and I already lost track of the first question about the Guthrie. Uh, 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 where is it at its location? Oh, yeah, I'm a sorry, lot of our Minneapolis. Um, and uh, they actually uh, tore down the original theater in 2006 and uh, built a new uh, theater on the Mississippi River in, in downtown uh, Minneapolis. Okay. Um, Keen, so let's talk a little bit about that first season that you were there. Um, what kinds of uh, shows went in, and, and what does it really mean to be a, a, a stagehand? Well, um, it, the stagehand is the person that uh, you're not supposed to see. They work backstage. They uh, do all the cues. Uh, now, the, the Guthrie is a little different from a normal uh, theater, and I guess I should maybe explain that. Uh, most theaters are what are called proscenium-type theaters, and the Guthrie has a thrust stage, and that would be like if you took a regular um, proscenium theater and basically had it stick a tongue out straight from the from the uh, proscenium about 35 feet, that would be the stage that the Guthrie has. So the Guthrie stage is surrounded on three sides by the audience. Um, okay. the stage hands uh, work backstage, so they have cues. If you know, like if in uh, blackouts between scenes, you'll run props onto the stage. Uh, if there's in a regular theater, if there's drops and things that need to be uh, brought in or taken out, um, 
stagehands do all that. They run the spotlights. They run the sound cues. They deal with uh, microphones on actors. So uh, there's a lot of uh, a lot of different things that they do. Okay. The uh, first season I was there uh, was actually um, uh, one of their really good seasons. They had uh, brought in uh, a director named Michael Langham in 1971. And he had taken a theater that had started off really well, and then it had gone downhill in the 60s. They'd kind of lost their direction, and uh, he, was, he had brought it back. He took it from, like, uh, a theater that showed t- or did a 20-week season of plays and took it to 40 weeks. And that year, I think they did, um, I think, The Caretaker, uh, they did uh, Arsenic and Old Lace, um, and I'm trying to remember what the I should have <laughs> I should have boned up on what all the plays were that year. Uh, they did a play called Loot, um, but they basically had about six or seven plays. And then at the end of the season, for the first time, they uh, they did a uh, a version of Christmas Carol, and that went over so well that they have been doing that every year since. So for about 45 years, uh, they've been wow. producing Christmas Carol every every uh, year. Okay. Um, being that you brought with uh, Christmas Carol, it, that's kind of an interesting play because a lot of the theaters, uh, there's some that just go through more modern plays, some that do, you know, classical or Shakespearean. Uh, Christmas Carol kind of falls into both. It's kind of how it's presented. Uh, does the Guthrie stick with more classical, or is it modern? Does it do both? Um, well, what, how, is, what's its reach? This is the thing: is uh, the the theater itself, the Guthrie Theater, is named after uh, Tyrone Guthrie, who was an Irish director. He was uh, known throughout the world. He uh, took a look at American theater and really was kind of disappointed in it. Most of the theater. Uh, this is back in the 1950s. Most of the theater, uh, legitimate theater and everything, was in New York. It, it was the Broadway model, which he despised. They, they had expensive productions. or The artistic standards uh, were not high. And they basically were uh, always working for a profit. And he wanted to create an alternative theater with a resident acting company, and he wanted them to perform classics in a rotating repertory with uh, professional actors. And so in 1959, he offered to create a theater if he could find a, a community in the U.S. that was interested in doing that. And Minneapolis was one of the cities that kind of stepped forward and said they'd do it. And he came to visit, liked the city. The city got together. They raised money. They, they put up a building. And they created this theater that um, basically was committed to doing a lot of plays that you don't normally see, like Shakespeare. I mean, Shakespeare is still relevant here, you know, 500 years later. But um, you wouldn't see it a lot in New York because it wouldn't make money. Well, here in Minneapolis, uh, they always do one or two Shakespeare plays. They do a lot of other classic plays. And then they have started also one or two plays a year, something that's a little more popular or a little more uh, well-known. Okay. okay, well, so 
for your first um, for your run at, at the Guthrie, yes, I would imagine that you were involved in building um, sets and sceneries and things like that. So, can you talk to us a little bit about what the process is like um, to be in you know in that that building phase for a play? Uh, you said you were doing houses. Um, I would imagine that that there's some things in common, so, but some things that are very yeah. not in common. Um, talk to us a little bit about the nuts and bolts of of being a, a, a set constructor or designer or, or whatever. Okay, and and to, uh, actually, when I worked at the Guthrie, I mostly worked on what was called the shift crew, where we worked the shows and everything. They had their own shop. This was the thing about the theater also was it was pretty self-contained. They had their own shop, which built the sets. They built their props, including, uh, you know, like if they needed a 16th century matchlock rifle or something like that, they would build it and it would work. Um, they had a prop guy who once built a 1925 Rolls Royce for a show. <laughs> um, you know, but uh, but they, had, they also had their own in-house wardrobe, uh, wigs, and even uh, a dye department that whose job was to dye the uh, materials and stuff for the wardrobe. Uh, when they would start a play, uh, the director and the set designer would get together and they'd discuss things. The set designer would come up with a design, and then they'd give that to the shop, and the shop would start building that. Um, and then as... As they're building the sets, the um, director is actually do, going uh, through uh, read-throughs and then uh, early rehearsals with the actors. And so by the time the set is done and the, the acting company is ready to come on stage and start learning their way around the actual set. So and then okay. as that's all going on, then there's also a lighting designer. So they're, they're hanging lights, which will light different areas of the stage which, uh, you know, will uh, spotlight certain people or whatever or certain areas, and that's all has to be cued. And the Guthrie had one of the early uh, electronic light boards, so a lot of that could be put into this board, and, you, you know, you could press a button, and, like, if you had a 10-second fade-out or something, it would automatically do it, whereas mm -hmm. in the past, the lighting designer would do that manually. So... Okay. Uh, I don't know if that gives you an idea of what goes yeah. on. Very solid idea. Uh, we have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KALA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. FM, the radio station with the most diversity in the Quad City region. Jazz, blues, R&B, hip-hop, Spanish and Hispanic programming, gospel, new rock, oldies, news, and shows addressing local community issues, and the world's best in entertainment and news from Public Radio International. Here's something different on KALA 88.5 FM, the most diverse radio station in the Quad City region. And welcome back to ROI, the radio show where the events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? 
My name is Jay Swords. And my name is John Keeley. This is the second segment of our show referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is author Keenan Bonnet, and we're talking about behind the scenes at the Guthrie Theater in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Our history buff for today's show is Rick Sweet. Rick, since you are the thespian of the crowd, you get the first question. And life is a stage, John. Uh, that's why I gave you the first question. <laughs> hey, Keen, welcome aboard. Hey, I have a, a question. You mentioned earlier that that there's a lot that goes into uh, building everything that's necessary for uh, a, a play, uh, be it furniture or rifles or hair dye and lighting, whatever. What is the lead time for uh, getting all the physical reality of a play together before the play is actually presented to the public? Well, when I was there, it was usually, um, it would be anywhere from six to 12 weeks. Um, depending on, you know, some shows uh, really had very simple sets. And so that wouldn't be a, a concern necessarily uh, time-wise. But the ones that had more involved sets, that uh, actually meant that the set construction started probably long before the, uh, you know, a number of weeks before the uh, actual rehearsal started. Sure. Okay. Um, okay. Um, I was I, I was going to add one thing to um, the the theater there. Uh, one of the things they came up with was uh, something called air casters. They had these huge sets that they would roll out and. They discovered, you know, that when you had them on wheels and stuff, it was, a lot of times it didn't work really well. They came up with a system of what they called air casters, which is similar to like the airboats that lift and float on a on a cushion of air. And so uh, we would end up, uh, we'd hook up a, a hose to the set and turn on the air compressor, and it would lift these sets up, and they, you know, and we'd basically float them up and down stage, or if we had to tr- spin them or whatever for a different scene. Um, that's what we do. That was one of the one of the innovations that they came up with there at the theater. Okay. All right. Um, I'm curious as to so over the, the the years that you were there or that you've been involved, what were some of the the plays that you thought were the most interesting or the most technically challenging that you were involved in? Well, I think um, I would say just overall the most enjoyable one to just to watch was uh, their version of The Matchmaker. And then uh, they also um, did um, Arsenic and Old Lace, which was another one. I was never one to really enjoy the um, uh, Shakespearean stuff. And another thing is that, you know, when you work backstage, a lot of times uh, you don't really, unless you sit and watch the rehearsals, you're not really sure of, of the entire action of the play because you're, you're sitting in the dark waiting for a, a little blue or red cue light to come on to go do your cue, and then you go back to, you know, reading a book or something or whatever. So, um, but uh, those are two shows where I actually went out front and watched and uh, really enjoyed those. Okay, with the question of uh, directors, I know you said earlier that you pretty much have an, an in-house with the theater, which that is pretty rare. 
Um, do they have in-house directors or do they fluctuate and come and go? Uh, because I'm sure you guys, as long as you've been around, there's some plays that you're going to do differently. I mean, it's the same play, but it'll be done by different casts, different exactly. individuals. So exactly. how do they go about that, if I may ask? Well, um, they, they have always had an artistic director who is a director, and that person usually will do either one or two plays a year and, and direct those, and then they will bring in outside directors. Now, they also, um, this has changed in the last few years, but during the time that I was there and for uh, probably the first 30 years or so, they had a resident acting company. So you had the same group of, of actors that um, would work in more than one play during the season. And uh, so they worked out of that pool, and then they would hire individual actors uh, perhaps to be like the lead role in a certain play, and, and they would come in and only do that play. But uh, as okay. for directors, they that's the same thing. They would bring in um, the directors. Um, I did want to say one thing about, and speaking of directing and acting, uh, I, I had mentioned that the theater has a thrust stage, which sticks out. It's uh, into the audience, basically. You have the audience on three sides. The way the Guthrie was designed was no, they have 1,400 seats in the auditorium, and no seat was more than about 50 feet from the center of the stage. And the stage itself was three steps above floor level. There was a small, what we called a moat, the walking area around the perimeter of the stage, which was probably five or six feet wide, and then you had the first row of uh, patrons right there. So you could sit in the front row at the theater and almost reach out and touch the actors. And the fact really? that even the farthest seats were so close, um, it created a different type of uh, experience as opposed to sitting in a, in a traditional theater looking at a proscenium stage. And that was one of the things that Guthrie, when he, when he had the theater designed, he wanted to eliminate the fact that in regular theaters you paid a lot more money to sit up close and see what was going on, and if you couldn't afford it, you saw little tiny people walking across the stage or whatever. So, um, but because of this thrust stage, uh, it made things, uh, it, it creates problems for directors because the actors have to act to, in three directions instead of straight out in front of them. So uh, they also, you, when you have a number of actors on stage, they can't just kind of move up stage and be out of the action because they're still seen by everybody. And the same for actors. A lot of actors are uncomfortable in that situation where they are are realize that you know they can't play to just one uh, part of the audience. They have to uh, constantly be aware that there's people on all sides of them. Uh, Henry Fonda was uh, doing a touring show, a one-man show of uh, Clarence Darrow, and he had been booked at the Guthrie, and he almost balked at. Uh, performing there because he had never been on a thrust stage before and he was really thrown by it and they solved the problem by putting his set as far upstage as possible and he never ventured downstage so he pretty much was playing straight out in front of him so i just uh, wow. thought that was would be interesting to get an idea of the intimacy of that type of theater that the guthrie is and when they rebuilt the theater the new theater they duplicated 
the thrust stage and the auditorium the way it had been in the original theater. I'd like to just add on that too. That that that's an amazing story because I you never really think about actors in their comfort zones. You just exactly. think that they're and that's a valid point. Thank you. Sure, sure. <laughs> hey, Keen, can I could I ask you? You mentioned the directors. You have uh, an artistic director, and uh, how stable is the rest of the the crew, particularly the backstage crew, and and how stable are your your uh, actors, I'm going to say local, but they probably drive in from, you know, uh, several miles if they have a, a gig at the Guthrie. But sure. how stable are uh, the crews and the act- actors? You, you mean as far as reliability and everything? <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, you. Uh, I've been and, to the Guthrie, and yeah. it is, in fact, a, a marvelous and unique experience. Uh, yeah. But well, it I'll seems tell you like that most, the most people, people are there. That work there. Most of the people that work there have been there for quite a while. It's one of those places where if you if you get a job there, you want to keep it. Um, one of the stagehands that worked in the shop and actually was a prop builder uh, just uh, retired here about a year ago, and he had been there since 1970. Um, and most of the people I know that work there have been there for, you know, 20, 20 years or more. And uh, even the acting, now it's changed now in the last, Actually, I think since they moved to the new theater, now instead of having a resident acting company, they hire actors for each individual show rather than having a a pool that's always always there employed all year round. However, they there's a lot of acting talent in Minneapolis, so you know most most of the actors are local, and then they will um, hire some people either from LA or New York or whatever. Okay, Keen, you mentioned Henry Fonda. I, I suspect that there have been a number of uh, major actors that have performed at the Guthrie over the years. Um, can you give us a, a little bit of sense of that? And, and then I guess my follow-up question is, uh, how much interaction do the folks backstage get to have with the people who are acting uh, out front? Uh, well, um I, let's see. I'm trying to think of. Uh, I, I don't know if you're familiar with Len Carreyou, who, uh, if you watch Blue Bloods now, he plays the grandfather on Blue Bloods. Yep, sure and do. And he uh, he actually uh, he's done a lot of movies and TV, but he was more of a Broadway person. He was a singer, and he uh, spent I think maybe it was just one season there, um, and he was Lear in King Lear. Uh, the uh, show Arsenic and Old Lace, um, which is about two matronly aunts who uh, lure old, older men who they think have nothing to live for into their home, and they feed them uh, uh, elderberry wine that's poison, and then they bury the bodies in the basement. Those uh, One of the ladies that played the, uh, the aunt, one of the aunts, was Virginia Payne, and she was a, a radio actress who uh, starred in a, a radio soap opera called Ma Perkins that ran from, like, 1933 until 1960. And she never missed a performance. She was also the person who was one of the organizers of uh, AFTRA, uh, actually AFRA back then, uh, the American Federation of Radio Artists, um, which was the the union for at that time radio artists and then later radio and TV artists. 
Um, let's see. Uh, there, there's a lot of, like, when I watch TV from the 70s and 80s and 90s, I see a lot of people that I recognize, you know, that aren't necessarily household names but are probably fairly well-known character actors that you, you see off and on in uh, TV shows. Uh, Peter Michael Getz was, is a local who acted there at the Guthrie for a number of years and then went to <clears throat> California and he was a star in a show called The Faculty and also, I think, one called Doc. And um, I guess I'm, other names are escaping me right now, but that's, that's a couple of, a few that I can think of. Okay. Um, John, I think we'll let you have the, the last uh, okay. short question here, and then I'll, I'll wrap up the segment. Okay, so um, when you talk about a season, uh, how many plays are there a year? I mean, for instance, uh, we have a local theater, Circa, and I think they put on something like uh, six a year. What, what is your guys' norm for a, a, a normal season of plays? Uh, back then it was a, it was uh, seven or eight plays, and uh, now uh, the new theater has the, uh, a thrust stage and a proscenium stage, and a uh, smaller experimental theater, so they probably do a dozen, twelve to fourteen plays all total between all the theaters there. Yep. All right. Well, Keen, it is uh, customary on our show that we give our guests the last word. Okay. So, why do you think knowing about arts and theaters like the Guthrie is relevant in today's world? Well, um, I had thought about this, and I I mentioned it earlier. I think this was what uh, Guthrie, when he created this theater, was thinking of. He wanted relevant theater. Um, he looked at uh, Broadway and stuff as kind of a peripheral stuff, but he wanted to be able to do shows that uh, have been around for a long time, like we, we discussed Shakespeare. You know, if it if it's been around for 500 years, there must be something relevant, something that people see in that and relate to. And um, that that's one of the reasons the Guthrie exists, is to bring shows like that that uh, wouldn't normally um, be produced in, in other theaters or for-profit theaters, so... I don't know if that is a clear enough answer or not, but that's fine. When we come back, we'll wrap things up, so please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. This program, the award-winning Relevant or Irrelevant, is heard Friday evenings at 9.30 p.m. Central Time on KALA HD2 or 106.1 FM in the Quad City area. You can listen over the air or anywhere via TuneIn.com. To hear this program and many other archived editions at any time, visit SoundCloud.com. Search for username KALA Radio. There you'll find Relevant or Irrelevant and many other productions produced at the St. Ambrose University Communications Center. This concludes the 368th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. 
Our program manager is Rick Sweet, and the theme song of our show is titled Kayla's Theme and was written and performed by Mark Zap Zapital. My name is Jay Swords. My name is John Keeley. We would like to thank our guest, author Keen Bonneth, who has talked to us about behind the scenes at the Guthrie Theater in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The History Buff for today's show is Rick Sweet. This is ROI, relevant or irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University K or KALA. We would like to wish all our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hotso Pula Nala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. Mm-hmm.